Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Keeping score with Rick Haro, weekly all issues relative to a trillion-dollar sports industry. It's football, it's golf, it's a whole host of things this week, but joined as regularly with someone who basically knows a lot about a lot, the executive editor of Reuters Digital, good friend Dan Colarusso. Thanks for joining me again. Anytime, Rick. We have a lot to talk about today, and one of them is in the say it ain't so category. For the first time that I can ever remember, NFL ratings for the first four weeks are, are down. NBC down 13%, still 22 million people. That's a lot of people. ESPN down 17%. CBS's Thursday Night Package down 15%. And here is the troubling thing if I'm an NFL television executive. ESPN down 24% with the 18 to 34 millennials, which is supposed to be the uh, the core of the fan base. So, um, Mr. Mr. Uh, boss of, of all things logical, why is that? I'll tell you two reasons, I believe. One, I don't think that the NFL has a narrative this season. There's no compelling reason to watch. The most compelling thing about the NFL this season is who's not on the field, and that's Tom Brady, right? But I also think the NFL is getting a kind of taste of its own medicine. I can spend my time watching television. I can spend my time on social. I can spend my time engaging in Facebook Live. There's a lot of draw on me right now, and there's not one experience that is jumping out as qualitatively better. So I can flip a coin on whether I want to watch Monday Night Football or I want to, you know, watch something else. If I'm binging on Netflix, I'm not going to take a break from Monday Night Football. The NFL has also done a great job of packaging its highlights. So with the fantasy age group where those millennials sit so well, you know, with that age group, that's an issue where I don't even have to watch the whole game. I watch the crawl or I watch the red zone or I watch a few minutes of highlights during the day and I'm, I'm caught up. So I think there's a, there are a few different dynamics in the, the Trump Hillary debate obviously was was a drag on Monday Night Football as well. So I think they're caught up in a couple of dynamics. I don't I'm not worried it's permanent, but I uh, but I do think the NFL needs a storyline this year and people need a reason to watch. And that starts on Sunday, I guess. Right. I'll call you on those arguments and I'll add a couple of more. The ratings are a blessing and a curse because nobody just evaluates whether you're watching a football game on a traditional over-the-top television uh, anymore. As you said, uh, mobile, uh, other kinds of devices, but in bars, for example, or illegally or pirated, whatever it is, A, you don't get credit for it at all, and B, you don't get credit for the 30 or 40 people that are watching with you. So I think that's a really important argument, but if you wanted to summarize it, it's basically three people, Trump, Brady, and Kaepernick. You mentioned the Trump debate. It's only going to get more or worse, some would say, before the election, and it's a Trump-Hillary interest. Second is Brady. He is back this week, so we'll see, as you said. And third is the Kaepernick issue, and many people say it's a legitimate expression of First Amendment, but a lot of people are saying, look, we're tuning in to watch football. We don't want to talk about patriotism or not, and frankly, don't mix them. So I think it's a lot of that combination. Uh, okay, we'll take that. There, there, there are dynamics. I don't know that the Kaepernick thing is a big a deal, considering the criminal court docket of the NFL. Um, 
guy kneeling down for the national anthem doesn't seem like it would be too off-putting to American fan who puts up with a lot worse. But we can argue that over a few drinks. Well, we'll argue over a few drinks, but also we'll see how it goes because I agree with you relative to the to the violent stuff. But then the whole NFL standing for uh, no fun league, some people are saying, where mm. there is a splitting of hairs as to what is an unsportsmanlike penalty. Do you spin the ball after the touchdown? Do you right. celebrate yourself, which is okay? Do you choreograph with your teammates, which is not? And that's another one that people are saying, look, just shut up and let them play. Can we, I just want to ask one question before we move on. Were you ever known as Rick White Shoes Haro? Yes, I was. The first of the end zone celebrators. Yes, well. Billy White Shoes Johnson, for our millennial listeners who don't remember back that far. That's what, A, you're old. B, yes, I remember that. <laughs> but I was known for a different reason. It's because in my high school prom, I thought it would be great if I looked like a snow cone salesman. So I dressed white from head to toe. That did not work, by the way. So, oh, okay. Just so well, you know. you've improved since then. Yes, yeah, so clearly. We'll, we'll uh, hopefully. The Thank you. Thank you for the comment. We'll go kind of to the Midwest for the next few topics we have. Hall of Fame basketball player Dr. Julius Irving, Dr. J, as we know, sold a majority of his naming rights and image to Authentic Brands Group. Guys like Shaquille O'Neal and Muhammad Ali and Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley, three of them are dead, two of them are not. Michael Jordan looking at this from a Chicago Midwest perspective. So what do we think about selling the naming rights to an individual's name and likeness, and can everybody do that? I think, I think these days with players developing identities and just things around them, brand, mini brands unto themselves, they'll probably have their own naming rights organizations and brand consultants to begin with. But for guys like Dr. J who missed that particular economic boat, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. You go throwback. I mean, you know, I just mentioned Billy White Shoes Johnson. I, you know, I still have my Sports Illustrated covers with Dr. J dunking from the foul line, right? That was a big deal back then. I think for some strat of athlete that missed, again, the, the largesse of the TV deals, the largesse of the branding and the commercial apparatus that goes around top flight athletes, I think it's a great deal for Dr. J. And I'm, I'm actually looking forward to seeing what they produce because he was a, a seminal figure of that time. And uh, because he played in the ABA, you know, I, I don't think he quite got the full Chamberlain treatment. And I, he's revered, but I don't know that he was able to capitalize on it as much as... Uh, another athlete might have, Magic Johnson or, or Larry Bird or that, that type of thing. The Cubs in the Midwest will stay there for a little while. Theo Epstein, the president of the Cubs, a $50 million package, five years, was given to Andrew Friedman, the L.A. Dodgers president of baseball operations. Friedman was part of the coaching tree, so to speak, of Theo Epstein. So it's going to be more than that. He signed a deal, five-year deal. The Cubs and the regular season, 103-58-1. It's the best record in Chicago since 100 years. And, um, and, you know, what happens? Honestly, honestly, the Major League Baseball's commissioner's office should chip in to pay whatever they're going to have to pay to keep the OFC in Chicago. Because the Cubs getting to the Cubs, look, the Cubs look like a good shot. The Cubs are a good, solid, fundamental favorite to be in the World Series this year. That will do more for baseball, for ratings, for popularity, for the the casual fan to get involved. Talk about a narrative. The OFC has made that. I can't imagine the guys in the green eye shades, you know, locked in the basement of Major League Baseball, if they're going to, if they're adding machines, are going to go fast enough for the revenue they're going to see coming in from a World Series if it involves the Cubs. Pay the guy. You know, make him a partner. I, I don't know if the Ricketts have a, a share of the, the team to give up, but, you know, the old line that Joe DiMaggio ever had to negotiate with George Steinbrenner, the first words he would say is, hello, partner. 
I think uh, the OFC might want to take that one. Yeah, well, but the Allo partner might be, uh, you know, Ricketts takes a minority interest. <laughs> it is so, <laughs> it's such a huge deal. He's staying. He said he's staying. They're wrapping it up. If they do make it, they are heroes. If they don't, they're still heroes. It is electrifying, and it captured the attention of Chicago, and it certainly doesn't hurt that the Bears really kind of suck, and the Bulls are not that great either. But. I would say it's a lot bigger than Chicago. I mean, the Cubs are the Red Sox, and there's a mythology and a tree that goes around them, and you know, it's a bigger narrative than, than the town. It's a bigger narrative than the sport. A bigger narrative and a universal narrative, as you so correctly point out. Let's go up the road to Minneapolis. 41st Ryder Cup, over $100 million of economic impact, 630 million homes, 200 countries. Really, really exciting event. And the bottom line is the American team wins 17-11. You are a golf cynic, a cynic by nature. So has this turned you on? Did they did they score a touchdown in there? Was there an extra point? It's whoever wins X matches. Right. It's an extra point. <laughs> so you go for two. It's it's eight and then a safety and then a rouge like Canadian football. Why do you spoil such a good golf thing by such, such inane questions? I mean, why do you do that? Golf spoils itself. Golf does not need any help spoiling a good thing. They take a beautiful day and a lovely lawn. And just <laughs> and make it just terribly banal, but okay. Did you like the idea of the uh, Patrick Reed putt right on top of Rory McIlroy's, and then they okay. kind of leave arm in arm? What about that? That was fantastic. You know, last week, and I don't know if this made it off the cutting room floor from last week, but we talked about you know golf hasn't had a populist moment in a long time and a popular moment. And even I watched that a couple of times. You know, the guy came out of the grandstand. He was razzing the players a little bit. They pulled him out of the grandstand and he sank a putt. It went viral. I mean, people. It was it was the perfect moment for golf, and it, it was it was a restorative moment. It made you even somebody like me, as jaded as I am about the sport, uh, made me hate it a little bit less. I think it, it might have been a moment for them if they can capitalize on it. They might want to stage that at the next few tournaments. So segue to the final Midwest thing: participation in golf for girls and boys up two hundred thirty-three percent in the last two years. Over five million. Women 18 and above are playing. Guggenheim announces a title sponsor of an event called the Women in Tech Championship in Indianapolis last week at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And golf branching out, not just golf, but technology, urban training, and development. Uh, Good idea? I think it's great. Look, I, I think urban training is, is fantastic for golf. Tennis really hasn't reaped the benefit of it broadly at the highest levels, but I think it's made an, an impact. I think it's fantastic. I think for females, for women, it's a great sport because there's a lot of open room to progress um, because there isn't that. You know, you're not stuck behind six generations of, of great players. There, there's room and there's economic room. And again, and for, for as much as I, I tease you about it um, because I have to and it's fun, uh, you, you and I... Uh, both fathers of daughters, and we know that they're really smart, um, but we know that there are certain opportunities that, that don't seem natural to them. And anything, you know, you can combine where you could take sports, uh, which 100 years ago was in the same place as science and engineering in Silicon Valley, uh, and make that accessible to, a, to the most important part of our population. It, it's an important step, and it's probably, it's probably good timing all things considered, a lot of low-hanging fruit and a lot of big companies that want to put some money behind it. Well, and that's good because that really does transition and lead us into Mike Wan, who is the LPGA commissioner. Uh, He's been involved on the retail side of the industry and also really an up-and-comer as a commissioner. He announced this event for Labor Day week next year and a three-year commitment by Guggenheim, Guggenheim Life and Annuity. And and your point is good because Dan Towers, the guy that runs Guggenheim, wouldn't have made this commitment just on philanthropic grounds, but you make it because sponsors are 
attracted to it. It's the high-end demographic. And you get the ability to train and get kids to be involved in golf, but also robotics and tech and STEM and all win-win for everybody. You know, nobody's doing it for philanthropic reasons, right? Um, but, again, there are opportunities, there are vectors, there are intersections of them that really help both sides. So, look, women's golf, uh, the LPGA has a ways to go. It, it hasn't had its bust-out star. It hasn't crossed over into pop culture. It hasn't had the big equipment deals. But, again, that's a blessing and a curse in this market. It allows you to be more nimble. It allows you to do deals with smaller media partners that, that really lay a foundation that could be a lot stronger, uh, that, that can grow up a lot stronger in this current media landscape. So I think it's, uh, if you're not worried about the ground you have to protect, it frees you from those legacy economies and it lets you be a little more experimental and a little bit more contemporary. And as a tease, we'll have Dan Towers, who runs the Guggenheim, uh, on in a future podcast. We've got him in the can, as they say in this world. But for today, uh, LPGA Commissioner Mike Wan. Mike Wan, 8th Commissioner of the LPGA. We've done this before. You've been in a leadership role since 2010, and you've done astronomical things. Um, this Women in Tech Challenge Championship happening in Indy, it is potentially a game changer, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We're excited about playing a big-time event in Indianapolis. We're excited about a $2 million purse. We're definitely excited about 170 countries watching us. But every once in a while, you get to play for something a little bigger than that. When you see all these young women in the, in the front row and talking about STEM and getting involved in science and tech in a big way, when you see that it's, uh, it's changing their lives, I get to see that a lot for golf around the world. I get to see young women around the world that sort of have this passion for golf and they're going to pursue it. But when you meet Dan, you meet the former mayor, and you see what they're doing for women in tech, they're changing lives their own way. So for the LPGA to be part of that, not just to be here, not just play golf, not just be back in the Midwest, where quite frankly I'm from, and, and we do our best stuff, it's exciting to know this event's going to be about a lot more than just golf. New sponsors, new partners, new financial investors, as it were, are really important for the lifeblood of the LPGA, aren't they? We don't play without our business partners, and we use the term partners. I always say that sponsors is a bad word because sponsors sounds like you bought something from me. But as my wife would say, partners means we're in this together, and that's the way we want to feel. We understand that uh, Guggenheim is in this with us, and we're in it with them. If this doesn't work for their business, if we don't move the needle for their vision in women in tech, we're not playing here in seven, eight, nine years. And we don't want to be in business with them for three years. We want to be in business with them for 30. special piece of this, too, is that sports – and economic development, especially in a town like Indianapolis, has always been tourism-related. Awareness, mentions, what it means. This is business and economic development as it relates to technology, training, urban workforce. How significant is that? Yeah, this is, uh, this is solving a problem. This is filling a niche long-term. And this is, this is Dan and the mayor understanding that if we don't address this now, we're going to have a hole in the workforce in the not-too-distant future. Now, when you come to us and you talk about, uh, even when you talk about transitional women re-entering the workforce, i got players on tour that are having that discussion. I've got former players on tour that are having that discussion. So when Dan started talking about training to help people re-enter the workforce in a tech environment, I told him, you're not only going to see tour players show up in India, you're going to see some of your future prospective uh, clients. They're going to want to go through this same learning. So everything that, uh, that they said the first time we met struck a chord. And uh, like I said, we're excited to make sure that when we come here, we don't just play a golf tournament, but we send a message. Well, and, and again, the important thing, too, is to have a successful uh, multi-year commitment, guaranteed three and many more for Indianapolis. But part of the deal also is to create some kind of a national template or national structure relating to women in the workforce training and women in tech uh, around the country, maybe, right? 
Yeah, I said earlier today, it's neat when you meet somebody who's got a vision bigger than yours. I mean, I, I think about big time golf tournaments. I definitely think about helping business partners. But when you meet Dan and he talks about women in tech, Indy is the start. It's not the finish. He views Indy as the lab where he's going to figure this out and he's going to make a difference in this market. He's going to make a difference for young women. And I feel pretty comfortable talking to him. And I think you'd agree yeah. that his mind is racing to if I can figure this out, there's other locations, there's other cities, there's other young women all around the country that we can roll this to. And we both have had a beer or two and said, what if? women in tech wasn't a regional thing? What if women in tech wasn't a tournament thing? What if it was across the country? And our goal, I think, between the two of us and certainly between my whole tour, is to bring that vision to life. Let's talk about the scope of the vision worldwide. Uh, majors won by a variety of women from around the globe. How does the internationalization of the women's tour actually enhance its progress? Well, if you think about it, it was only maybe 20 years ago when golf, especially women's golf, was made up of golfers from the U.S. and Europe. It was made up of business partners from the U.S. and Europe. As a result, it was televised in U.S. and Europe, and we generally had fans in U.S. and Europe. And so if somebody would have said, you're a stock, what's your upside value? Well, we sort of tapped into our upside value. Now, you jump 20 years later, and we've got players from all over the world. We've got television coverage all over the world. We've got young girls on golf tees with training coaches and programs that they can get into that are happening in virtually every corner of the world. So golf, I've said this many times, especially women's golf, is truly borderless. There's women coming from all over. They're all striving to make it to this tour because when you talk to the best of something in the world, what they want to do is test themselves against the other best. On the LPGA, you got 150 of the best female golfers on the planet teeing it up against each other week in and week out with the whole world watching to find out who's the Rolex world ranking number one player. And it's really cool for me right now, the five top players in the world rankings come from five different countries. Interesting dynamic, especially after the Olympics. A lot of pre-Olympic discussion was about the men that didn't come. The women came and had a very successful Olympics. How do you build on that? What's well, funny, I got asked a lot during Rio, what's the key thing that has to happen here? What's gonna be the key impact of these four days in Rio? And I've said this many times, the impact of golf in the Olympics happened way before Rio. What happened at Rio almost didn't matter to me because I didn't understand, when people use the term Olympic movement, I didn't understand what they meant. But what I've seen over the last six or seven years is when golf became an Olympic sport, there's countries all over the world that invest in Olympic sports. They invest in school programs and training programs, teachers and, and workout facilities. And right now, if you're a young woman and you want to enter golf, you're going to enter what a lot of, company, what a lot of countries consider a podium sport and they invest in podium sports. So they're growing up with school programs and after school programs and teachers and fitness regimes all built to create world-class female golfers. None of that existed before the Olympics. So the Olympic movement was all about the movement in putting golf into the Olympics and what's happened way before we ever teed it up in Rio and way before we'll ever tee it up again in four years in Japan. Television and women's golf, television and women's tennis seems to be on the rise continuously. Uh, do you follow kind of the same metrics and platform? Do you do things differently? What's the future of women's golf on TV? Well, uh, well, there's a lot of similarities between tennis and golf, meaning that they both become pretty global. Players come from all over the world. They play all over the world. The major difference between us and the WTA is we've made a real commitment to make America, North America, our home. We play 65% of the time here. Players from all over the world move here. We're based here. So when you talk to a player from Korea or Japan or Singapore, Australia, Taiwan, Thailand, they've generally moved here to America to commit to playing 
on the LPGA. Now, we will travel all over the world. We'll televise all over the world. But uh, we're a little different in the fact that we're not sort of nomadic. We don't, this is where we consider home. This is where we play. That's why adding events like Indianapolis are so key. We've had a huge increase in our schedule over the last five or six years. But overwhelmingly, the biggest increase in that schedule have been North American events. The number of uh, followers, apparently four or five times WTA versus LPGA, that's not as important as what you're doing in the future to deal with social media and using it as a platform to expand. Yeah, I've had a lot of other commissioners and sport leaders kind of critique me because at the LPGA, we don't really push at LPGA as a Twitter handle. We push players' Twitter handles. So if you see the back of a bib at the uh, Indy Women in Tech Tournament, you're not going to see uh, uh, at LPGA. You'll see Paula Creamer's handle. You'll see Lexi Thompson's Twitter handle or Facebook post. We want you to follow them because if you're following them, you're following us. And to be honest, they're a lot more interesting than we are. So um, our following is all about follow our athletes, learn the kind of lifestyle and a commitment to sport they've made, and at the end of the day, you're following the LPGA. So I don't really pay attention to how many people follow the league. I really pay attention to how many people follow our athletes. Do we need the next female breakout superstar on the LPGA Tour to help expand and grow it, or do we already have that? Well, you know, it probably depends on where you ask. I've said this many times. Everyone says to me, who's the face of the LPGA? And I always say, well, who's the face of the NFL? See, I have three boys, and we grew up all over the country. So if you ask one of my boys, they'd say Tom Brady. If you ask another one of my boys, they'd say Drew Brees. Another one would say Cam Newton. They're all right, right? Because wherever you, whoever you follow, if you ask people about the LPGA, they might say Lydia Ko from New Zealand. They might say Lexi Thompson from Florida. They might say Arya Jutanagard from, from Thailand. Um, so the, the really cool thing is, no matter where you're growing up, no matter where you follow, we've got superstars from all those areas. And I think a sport's really at its best when there's a large group of athletes leading it. And I think, you know, anytime a sport gets down to there's one player and where he or she doesn't show up, the event is lessened, that becomes problematic for a league. We're not there right now in the LPGA. We've got 20, 30 athletes that represent 10, 15 different countries that are all at the top of the world rankings. You personally transitioned from a, a sports series of sports product companies to running a major professional sports league. Um, skills that are transferable, skills that are different. Uh, how's that transition been? Well, most people and players would probably tell you the transition is still in progress. But um, I've always said I've got no background or no experience to be the commissioner of anything. I was the least qualified person for the job. The only time I'm comfortable in this job is when I'm sitting across from somebody who's thinking about writing a significant check every year for the next five years to sponsor the LPGA. Because in my background growing up, I've sponsored everything. I haven't run leagues. I haven't done TV deals. I haven't figured out pin placements on the 17th hole. But luckily, I have a great team around me that can do that. But what I do know is that when you write a check to a sport, you expect them not just to cash the check, but be committed to your business. So one thing I can tell you, at the LPGA, there is no other more customer-centric group of athletes than us. We focus. We want to make sure that this isn't just a good event for us, but Indy's a great event for Guggenheim. And if it's not a good event for Guggenheim, we won't play anymore. And I've said this many times that I just, I don't see LeBron James finish around and sit in the locker room and talk about the latest sponsor on tour. Yeah. Um, but you will definitely see our athletes when you interview them afterwards, talk about Guggenheim, they'll talk about women in tech, they'll talk about the race to the CME Globe, they'll talk about the Rolex World Rankings, because they realize that without them, we're at home playing in a member member. Well, and it's interesting because your comments about not being qualified to be a commissioner are humble and of course not true, but when you think about the values and traits and expertise that you need to be fluent as a commissioner in your world, what's most important, marketing, tech, psychology, economics? Listening, uh, and to yeah. be honest with you, what you need to realize is that it isn't about what you're looking for. I always have fans that'll email me and say, how come we don't play in Pittsburgh? How come we don't play in 
Chicago. And I always say it's because I don't go looking for cities. I go looking for business partners. And when I work with a business partner, I ask them, where can we best move the needle for your business? So when I meet Dan from Guggenheim and he says, this is about Indy and building women in tech in Indy, we're playing in Indy. I didn't go looking for Dan because of a, I wanted to find Indy. I wanted to know how we could move the needle for Guggenheim Insurance. And so, you know, for me, what I've learned in this job more than anything else is, if I can understand what's important to my business partner's business, we can figure out how to create a golf tournament to deliver that. If I walk into somebody's office and tell them why they need to be writing a check to golf, no, I haven't met a CEO yet who woke up and drove to work and thought, if I just had a golf tournament, man, everything would be great. And until I meet that person, I have to worry about their business and not mine. Finally, what's it like being a guy running a woman's organization? <laughs> well, it is funny. I was in a meeting the other day, and uh, I was giving a, it was a presentation I was giving to college. And a person raised their hand, and they said, what's the most strange thing about being the LPGA commissioner? I said, in this room right now, there's 60% men and 40% women. I haven't been around this many men in a room in seven years. And when we break for a bathroom break, I'll wait in line. I haven't waited in line to go to a bathroom in uh, seven years. Or so it's, uh, it's very different. But at the end of the day, world-class superstar athletes are world-class superstar athletes. They're focused, they're driven, they're honest, which I love. I mean, when you talk to an athlete, and she either shot 64 today or 74, and there's no median ground, you don't explain that away. So when you're talking to one of my athletes, and I'm talking to people from my sport, I love the fact that it's just straight. It's out there, you tell it like it is, and we can all deal with the truth. I find sometimes in business, you know, there's, there's ways around the facts. It doesn't happen in sports, and it's one of the best part about my job. There you have it, Mike Wan, transitioning from bathroom habits to being a world-class commissioner in about 30 seconds. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobtay. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.